With American fighter jets providing cover overhead along with a force of U.S. Marines, more than 150 Americans were evacuated from Libya today after heavy fighting in Tripoli forced the abrupt closure of the U.S. Embassy there. Libya has become increasingly unstable in recent weeks, with rival militias engaged in some of the fiercest fighting since the fall of the Muammar Gaddafi regime. Today's exodus has large implications for the U.S., which helped topple Gaddafi. And then, of course, there's the fresh memory of the bloody 2012 attack on the American consulate in Benghazi. The evacuation was necessary to protect the more than 150 Americans at the embassy in Tripoli. Experts say it's the worst violence in Libya since the revolution in 2011. It took about five hours for a caravan of 158 U.S. Embassy personnel, including 80 heavily armed U.S. Marine Guards, to cross into Tunisia, about 100 miles away. They left the embassy compound in SUVs and buses. NBC's Jim McLeshevsky reports F-16 fighter jets and unmanned drones flew overhead, shadowing the group. Dozens of U.S. Marines, a rapid response force in tilt rotor Ospreys, were in the air, positioned nearby to respond to any threat. Once safely in Tunisia, the Americans boarded commercial airliners at a civilian airport. My name is Sarah Carlson. This is my book, In the Dark of War. It is a CIA officer's inside account of the U.S. evacuation from Libya. If you are curious where the title came from, it came from this quote from Thucydides in his book, The Peloponnesian War. Think, too, of the great part that is played by the unpredictable in war. Think of it now, before you are actually committed to war. The longer a war lasts, the more things tend to depend on accidents. Neither you nor we can see into them. We have to abide their outcome in the dark. On July 26, 2014, the U.S. mission evacuated Tripoli, Libya, as civil war broke out in the country. While surrounded by militia forces, the entire U.S. mission conducted the emergency destruction of our facilities and evacuated more than 150 U.S. personnel overland in armored vehicles through hostile territory amidst active fighting and in a heightened terrorist threat environment. The civil war started in Tripoli on July 13, 2014, 13 days later, we initiated the evacuation at approximately 0500 in Tripoli and arrived in Tunis, Tunisia the following morning at 0700, 26 hours later. This story is based on real events and my first-hand observations while I served as a CIA officer as part of the U.S. mission in Tripoli, Libya. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a special guest on with me for this podcast. Um, she is the author of In the Dark, a CIA officer's inside account of the evacuation from Libya. Sarah Carlson. How's it going, Sarah? Hi, thank you for having me on. Yeah, thank you for coming on. A lot of things, uh, you know, people that are in that world, the public doesn't get to see too much into that, you know, what that's like. So when a book like yours comes out, it's a chance for people to see what's happening. Um, just from a practical standpoint, what are 
tax dollars going to and, and people get to see some of that. And I think it's insightful and inspiring for the uh, the next generation of Americans who are going to come up and, and serve their country. Well, thank you. I think oftentimes people have an idea of what the CIA is based on movies and right. You know, it's often not, but this is one situation where there there were actually some correlations to to things you might see in a movie. So it was, it's been kind of fun to talk about, like, you know, shredding documents and, you know, evacuation. So um, it's a little more, I think it's, it's a little different than I think a typical CIA book is. Right. So your book, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it. Uh, in, in a little more detail, but your book basically focuses on this uh, one piece of your career, essentially, right? Yes, it's very much focused on just that year. So it's it's in the dark of war, and it's very specifically about Libya and what happened there. So I intersperse it a little bit with some of my background, but it, um, it is primarily just about that year. Right. Okay, so let, let's start with the beginning and sort of... Uh, if you can sort of give us an intro into, uh, you know, your beginnings in government service and what motivated you to, to want to serve. The service is really important to me and um, and my family as well. So I credit my mother with sort of instilling that sense of purpose and sense of mission in us from a very early age. I come up from a very strong military background. So I, I was not in the military, but m- most of my family was. So I have three brothers and they all joined the military and my grandparents and uncles and cousins. And so, um, there's a lot of, um, you know, that service orientation orientation. And then my father was actually a minister. So different kind of service, but still, you know, that heavy emphasis on helping others and protecting others. So, um, I really think that that's where that sense of purpose came from. And then, you know, nine 11 happened, in my senior year of college. And I think for a lot of people, um, of our generation that, that just changed, it changed everything. So I was working for emergency management at the time I was interning while I was finishing up college. So I was able to help, um, the search and rescue team get prepped and ready to go to New York city to, um, the world trade center. So that, um, of course, left a, a huge impression on me. And, and being able to help on that day was, you know, it instead of, you know, feeling lost or without purpose, I, I had a purpose that day and I wanted to explore that more and I wanted to be able to help more. And so my boss at the time was familiar with the Defense Intelligence Agency and recommended it. And so I actually started with DIA. So I applied as soon as I graduated and was recruited and and started working counterterrorism from the beginning. Um, that was my focus. That was my mission. And that was early 2003. So it, it took a little bit of time, you know, to I had to finish school and then get my clearance, which, of course, is daunting. Um, so I started there and I worked at DIA for about five years and then transferred to or was recruited by CIA and did that for almost eight years. So, you know, DIA, it's probably not as well known as CIA, um, but the right. DIA does a lot of important work. And, you know, I've known several people who came from there over the years. Um, can we just talk about the role of a, a counterterrorism analyst at the DIA? 
Yes, um, our primary mission at DIA was to support the military, so to support defense. And so that ranged from everything from, you know, like helping the warfighters. So I deployed to Baghdad in, later in 2003 and was writing, you know, reports very much geared towards like th that tactical level, um, helping with operations and um, doing research related to that. So it wasn't, you know, that big strategic stuff. It was very tactically focused, but most of what I did at DIA headquarters was the more strategic um, analysis. So we were writing on like trends. So like where the trends were going in Iraq, you know, obviously counterterrorism became a, a huge problem or terrorism became a huge problem very early on in the Iraq war. And so we started doing a lot with that. And so at DIA headquarters, the primary sort of audience was the um, the Pentagon, so the Secretary of Defense and then the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So we would brief the um, the J2 every morning and write, um, write assessments for him. So it's just a, a little bit different focus, and it really just um, depended on the audience, but it was very much defense. Right, and, you know, I have some friends who... Um, you know, I've done some work with as far as like producing content and stuff who were at DIA for a couple of years. And, uh, you know, they've done similar things with attaching to, you know, task forces and stuff like that uh, overseas, uh, sort of being the eyes and ears uh, for the warfighters, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, it was it was really interesting, too, because, you know, I was able to go to um you know, meetings and such and help with um, questions and like what we were particularly interested in. And then I also had the chance to work at a combatant command. So I worked at Northcom for a couple of years. Um, and the focus there, of course, was on any threats to the homeland. So um, it's interesting, I think, because um, I had a, a lot of opportunities to do like joint um, projects and joint assessments as well as combined. So we were working with, you know, um, the Five Eyes, so um, our our partners, and then you know, Northcom was a joint command with Canada. So it was it was um, interesting to to be able to do so much and interact with so many people who were all very much focused on defense. And I think you know right after nine eleven, Five Eye community really came together. If you look at just like a war zone in Afghanistan, there was a huge task force of different special operations groups and teams from different countries all working together. So it was important to me because my brothers were in the military. So I was able to focus not only on, you know, supporting the military writ large, but very specifically my brothers who were also um, going to Iraq and Afghanistan. So I was really grateful to be able to do work that helped protect them as well. So, you know, you had an interesting you know, I would say experience and career because you were at DIA, but then you got recruited uh, to the agency. Are you able to talk about maybe how some of that came about or why uh, someone would transfer jobs from the DIA to the CIA? My path, I don't think was normal in any way, but um, I will certainly go through how it happened. Um, so I mentioned I was with the DIA for about five years. I did 
two years at Northcom, and then I also, before that, did um, two years at NCTC, which was the National Counterterrorism Center. Yeah. So it was when they were first standing up, and you know, it was like first TTIC, and then um, and then sort of morphed into NCTC. So that again was a joint environment. So it had people from all around the intelligence community, and we were all working together on teams. And um, I was able to meet a lot of different um, people and, you know, sort of experience a little bit secondhand what the different sort of cultures of the different agencies were like. And it was from there that I went to Northcom. So then when I was headed back to D.C., um, that is actually when I applied and I was able to, you know, like base that decision on what I knew about the agency from having met um, people again at NCTC. And so asked around a little bit about you know, sort of um, the offices and the difference between, you know, DIA and CIA. So I, I decided to go ahead and apply. And um, I think everybody, I've had a lot of people ask me and I've, some of my um, former colleagues have said this as well, that, um, you know, people wonder, is there like a shortcut to get in or is there like a different process or referral system? And there's really not. Everybody applies on the website. So it's all all routed through everybody. Everybody has to apply through that website. And, um, you know, I um, was selected for the interviews and went through that process. And then um, CIA actually does their own background check. So even though I had the top secret clearance, um, they redid the clearance and then um, started working there in early 2008. And I think that the work that I was doing both at NCTC and Northcom um, helped with getting that position because the the bulk of my focus throughout my career was counterterrorism. But even within that, it was very specifically on um, terrorist um, plans and intentions to attack against the homeland in the West. And so then once I um, was recruited by CIA, um, they were um, they had a team that was specifically looking at that same subject matter. So I was assigned to that team and and continued to do very similar work, but for a very different audience. And I think that's one of the biggest differences between DIA and CIA is um, you know who you're writing for and um, the sort of like the weight behind it. So I, you know, I very much appreciated my experience at DIA, but there's a lot more weight behind CIA. It's a lot more familiar. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of baggage, good and bad that comes with, with that acronym. Right. Um, and so it was really interesting to go through that and, and they retrain every analyst as well. So it was like three, months of training even after I started, even though I'd already been an analyst for five years. Right. Um, because they they want the analysis conducted in a very particular way. And um, and I really appreciated that. It, it sort of made this um, baseline that everybody, um, wherever you came from, you had the sort of this baseline knowledge of, of how an analyst was supposed to do their job. And um, you know, like my first briefing, it was really interesting because it was so different from briefing at um, DIA where I you know, was briefing sort of a senior government official and, you know, we're trained to say like, we assess or we think because you're not speaking for yourself, you're speaking for the agency. And so it was a really, um, 
it, it came across very differently, and it was a really interesting experience for me to to brief that senior official as a CIA officer because, you know, like I'm I'm saying like the CIA assesses, and so um, you know, it was taken differently. There were different kinds of questions, and and it, I I appreciated both, but it was certainly very different. And was the process for you to join the CIA was that uh, expedited at all because you were you had worked with uh, worked with them before and you were at DIA or is it roughly the same length of time to get in as uh, someone who's let's say you know applying online and you know fresh out of college kind of thing? It was the same process, so there are no shortcuts. Right. I think it helped that like any travel I had was. Like, so you have to talk about like foreign contacts and travel and that kind of thing. And but if you're doing it in an official capacity for the federal government, you don't include that. And so, um, the bulk of my travel for that five years was that. So it kind of helped expedite that a little bit. But otherwise, they still um, do the same process, like the SF-86, and you know, like go back. What is it? Ten years, I think, still. And so even though I'd had my clearance for part of that. You still go back the full 10 years and then um, you go through, you know, like the polygraph and um, all of that still. So there, no, there are no shortcuts. Right. So I know if, um, you know, if, like you mentioned, your travel was with the government, so that wasn't really looked at. But if you had extensive travel uh, as a civilian, you know, that will get looked at um even though I do believe, you know, they encourage people who have experience uh, living or traveling in foreign countries and speaking different languages and, and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I think that experience is very much valued. It just takes longer right. to process um, if you have that in your background. But, I mean, it's very much wanted and needed. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and just for people... Uh, you know, for the audience, just sort of thinking about this, a, a lot of what the agency does is focused on uh, other countries or, or foreign countries. So, you know, people would be in the service for 20 years and have lived, you know, all over the world or served all over the world. Uh, you know, although there is a component of people who are based in the United States. Um, so pre 9-11, you know, there wasn't as big a focus on transnational terrorism as there is now. Uh, you know, in the aftermath of 9-11, uh, significant resources and personnel was allocated to the counterterrorism role. You know, when I think of the kinds of people who take on this task of going after bad guys, you know, I think of Jennifer Matthews, who was a, a CIA chief of base. And you know, from my understanding before that, she was a pioneer in counterterrorism targeting. Um, in December of 2009, she was tragically killed, uh, along with several other Americans, um, uh, at a base in southeastern Afghanistan. Are you able to talk about what the job is for a targeting analyst uh, working counterterrorism at the CIA? Yes, and, um, you know, just hearing you say that again, I can't believe, like, this last December was the 10-year anniversary of that. Yeah. It's just, um, it was um, a big anniversary. So, um the targeting analyst. So they're targeting officers sort of on the analytic side and then on the operation side. And 
the targeting analyst is definitely a, a newer newer position, but you still get that baseline analytic training. So again, one of the things I really liked about the CIA is that you can move around. So everybody has that same baseline training. Everybody graduates from the career analyst program. So could go from being like a targeting analyst in CTC to being um, like a leadership analyst in a regional office. So um, I, I definitely liked that. So we all started out kind of from the same baseline. And again, it really just gets into the difference between, um, you know, like tactical versus strategic and the intended audience. So I would say just in general terms, being a targeter, um, it's just a lot more tactical. So rather than looking at, you know, the trend of terrorism in the world in the next 10 years, you're looking at a terrorist and where they're going and what they're doing. Right. So basically, what is popular and, and uh, sort of sexy, if you will, is the, you know, the tier one guys or the special ops guys kicking in doors and, and doing that kind of thing. But, you know, the intelligence uh, and information is what drives those operations. And in Iraq, uh, there was a period where they didn't have much information. So th uh, those earlier deployments, uh, these tier one teams and special ops teams were going after like Saddam and, and those kind of guys. Uh, while there was a, a growing problem of outside groups coming into Iraq and, and that kind of thing. And it was, it wasn't until they started installing cell phone towers all over Iraq and people started talking on the phone that they were able to get this signals intelligence. And then that really drove up the pace of operations. And I think, um, especially in the beginning, it was a, a bit difficult to, um, on the human intelligence side, because, you know, people were like informing on their neighbors so they were mad at them or, you know, you had to right. differentiate between like what was a true threat and then what wasn't. And then of course, in supporting that tactical level, you have to know where, where they're going to be, when they're going to be there, who they're going to be with, what they have with them, that kind of thing. So, um, that's really where the intelligence and like analysis side comes in where you need put together a briefing before an operation on like this this is what we expect. Right. So your book is focused on a period of your life when you were in Libya, uh, in Africa. Um the first co-host on my show uh, he was a former Green Beret and he was a sniper team leader at the Commanders and Extremist Force for the 10th Special Forces Group. And at the time of the attack on Benghazi in 2011, uh, they were in the process of being stood up. So they weren't 100% operational yet. And uh, since in recent times, the commanders and extremist forces, I believe, are getting stood down within the special forces groups. But basically what they are is a uh, crisis response force. And each group is assigned to a different geographical location. So... You know, they train for hostage rescue and, and counterterrorism operations and essentially to have the ability to rapidly deploy to these places. So as the attacks in Benghazi were taking place, um, 
their area of responsibility was Africa. Um, so when uh, the attacks were happening, and this was a few years before you were there. So yeah, uh, when the attacks were happening, uh, my first co-host, his name is Mike Glover. And then uh, my other friend who was also a team leader, a sniper team leader, is uh, Tu Lam from Rona Tactics. Um, they both happened to be in North Carolina at the time. And so they were in a command and control center and they had uh, basically situational awareness. They were watching the drone feeds. They were listening to the communications. And, and we've spoken about these things on podcasts previously. Um, so it wasn't until the, you know, the attacks were over and the, uh, the 10th group SIF was fully stood up and they were deploying into Libya for a while. Um, can you talk about uh, any of the, you know, what it was like, the, the atmospherics of, of your time being there and, and maybe how some of those events that happened prior to you getting there led up to what took place in your book? I'd like to take a second to talk about our sponsor for this podcast. And it's a movie that's coming out this month. TriStar Pictures brings you The Last Vermeer, a new captivating dramatic thriller directed by Dan Fredkin, starring Guy Pearce and Klaus Bang. While Joseph Piller, played by Klaus Bang, a Dutch Jew was fighting in the resistance during the Second World War, the witty debonair artist Han van Medgeren, played by Guy Pearce, was hosting hedonistic soirees and selling Dutch art treasures to top Nazis. Following the war, Pillar becomes an investigator assigned the task of identifying and redistributing stolen art, resulting in the flamboyant Van Medgren being accused of collaboration, a crime that's punishable by death. Despite mounting evidence, Pillar becomes increasingly convinced of Hans' innocence and finds himself in the unlikely position of fighting to save his life. The last Vermeer opens only in theaters November 20th. So the attacks in Benghazi happened in September 2012, and I got there in July 2013. So it was just a few months later, but it was definitely, it's it set the stage for everything that came after, right? So we were, you know, planning as if another attack like that could happen again, Um a lot of my focus was on assessing the terrorist group, Ansar al-Sharia, that conducted that attack and whether they were making their way to Tripoli, where I was. And I think, you know, just in general, the atmospherics, I think people were a lot more, the Libyans were a lot more sympathetic um, to the U.S. in the immediate aftermath of the revolution um, for the assistance and, you know, like ousting Gaddafi and the NATO support. And so I think, um, you know, Libyans were expecting, um, you know, the country to stabilize probably more quickly than, than it did. And, um, they were very hopeful in the beginning. And so there was not, um, it, I don't know. I want to. I don't want to say it was wanted, but it was appreciated, and like the assistance that was provided was appreciated, um, and so that certainly changed with the Benghazi attacks. And I think you know it had been shifting that way um, as the country was not stabilizing; that it was actually destabilizing further. And then when I got there in July, 
it it really escalated towards that end. Um, there were, you know, it's a little bit different than, um, like, say, Iraq or Afghanistan, um, which I think people are a little bit more familiar with. Like, Africa is very tribal. And so in Libya, there were many different tribes, and, and those tribes all had militias. And those militias um, were the ones that were relied on for like law enforcement and military rather than an actual law enforcement and military. So um, like in Benghazi, it was a militia that was providing like the perimeter security. Normally that would be done by um, like another country's diplomatic security force or military, but they didn't have one. So um, they contracted with a militia to provide that security. And we ended up doing the same thing in Tripoli you know, less than a year later, we were still operating under very similar conditions to that. And it was destabilizing, you know, every day you can just sense it. It was um, growing worse and there was no law and order and um, all, all the efforts to sort of help them build capacity to like start a military, they, um, they just, they went nowhere. There was actually this, um, like, I don't know if you're familiar with the, G- the GPF, which was this idea that, um, you know, the countries involved in the NATO intervention were going to help Libyans create a military um, and so that offered, like, training and whatnot. And so Libyans would um, go to, like, the host country and go through the military training there. And it was just, like, a complete debacle. And I kind of talk about this a little bit in the book, but... Um, like there were, they set things on fire, there were assaults, there were sexual assaults um, of like the host country nationals. And so um, it was just a complete failure from start to finish. So, you know, efforts to create that stability just went nowhere. And the divides, the divisions between the militias and the tribes, they just deepened um, until they just reached the point that the civil war broke out. And the point that you were evacuated, is that when the civil war had already broken out at that point? Yes. So this divide that I mentioned it. um, So I mentioned there was a bunch of different tribes and militias, but they started over the course of that year, you know, basically picking a side. And so there ended up being like two primary sides. And um, in July 13th, um, one, one militia attacked the other and they started that attack, which was the civil war by targeting the Tripoli international airport. And so we were right by the airport. And so, um, we were very much caught in the crossfire, but it was like this heavy bombing campaign where they were launching, you know, hundreds of rockets a day and anti-aircraft artillery and small arms fire. So because they started by taking out the airport and there was so much anti-aircraft artillery being used, we couldn't um, fly out. So you know, I know AFRICOM was looking at trying to send people in. And of course, I think people are now familiar with, um, like the quick reaction forces and like um, Rota and Siganella, but they couldn't um, enter Tripoli airspace because there was so much going on. Um, so we ended up having to drive out, but uh, we were there two weeks while this was going on. And um, so it was two weeks of that, that heavy bombing. And then um, also 
I mentioned the terrorist group. So as that group, um, as the fighting continued, that group started entering Tripoli. And so, you know, as the analyst, I knew it was happening and I was really worried that they were going to use that fighting as cover to um, come and attack the embassy. Right. And, you know, we mentioned earlier in the podcast that people generally have a misconception about what it's like, you know, at the CIA and, and that kind of thing. But you mentioned one part that is could be accurate is the evacuations of embassies and, and that sort of thing. And uh, that's, uh, you know, shown in movies and shows uh, over the years. Um, there's a show that's currently running called SEAL Team on CBS and uh, one of the episodes in the show is uh, these tier one SEALs uh, helping evacuate an embassy uh, somewhere in Africa. I forget where it was at, but uh, I guess they do get that part right. You know, the, the shredding <laughs> papers and burning things and, and, you know, getting out of there. Yeah. And, um, you know, our security officers were all former special operations. So SEALs or Rangers or um, special forces. So, um <laughs> it's probably more accurate than, than you'd think. But during the evacuation, yeah, we had about a day and a half where we had to destroy everything. So we started these huge destruction fires and we were, um, you know, driving nails through hard drives and shredding all the papers and then taking all of that and then throwing it on the fire. Um, but it, I say it's more like a movie because the, I think those are the things that people think of in the movies because they're exciting and they're sensational. Um, and it doesn't normally happen. Um, it's actually pretty rare. And so, um, you know, the other big one is that, um, like, I was designed to be a tactical commander. So um, on the drive out, so during this emergency operation, and, you know, as the CIA analyst. So um, that was, that was sort of like a movie moment, right? Like, that does not normally happen. I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm probably still the only CIA analyst that can say I was a tactical commander during an emergency operation. <laughs> So, um, you know, they're not normal things, but, um, right. you know, pretty exciting, very movie-like and, um, you know, very much worthy of putting in a book, I guess. So, um, you know, I tell people this story and they're like, oh, my God, it's like a movie. I'm like, yeah, it kind of was. <laughs> yeah. So when you, you know, when you guys decided, all right, we need to get out of here, was it just solely based on there's a war going on around us and it's not safe or we have information and we think these groups are going to try and attack us directly uh, and, and use this war as a cover? It was both. So for we can't stay here, we need to get out. Um, so that's like any shelter in place. I mentioned I do emergency management now, right? Like there has to be an end game to shelter in place. You cannot shelter indefinitely. And so we didn't know when the shelter was going to stop. And there were other issues we were facing, like, um, did we have enough food and water to get through? Um, like how, how long could we last on the food and water we had? Cause there was no way to get more. Um, and then the embassy ran into some issues with like waste disposal. They didn't have a way to dispose of waste. And, um, they had um, like a shortage of fuel, whereas we had um, like a lot of reserves. So um, there were those very basic practical living issues. There was also like medevac, like what if somebody um, 
was wounded seriously and we needed to get them out like how would how would we do that what would that look like we didn't really have a good option we were relying on um one of the local hospitals and it was attacked as well so um that was no longer a viable option so there was was like very practical necessary things but then there was also you know the looming threat and it was very much real so we were the subject of numerous kidnapping threats throughout the year. And in fact, we had um, some military members that were held hostage when they were um, doing a like, reconnaissance operation, um, actually looking at evacuation options. So um, that was in December of 2013. And um, so the, like the threat was still very much present and very real. And as the fighting continued during that um, that two weeks, they were moving closer. And so um, the closer they got, the closer the small arms fire was getting to us. So we started getting um, hit more frequently. So, you know, they say it's indirect, which I think is one of the worst words. Like, it's indirect, but you're directly getting hit. Um, but we were, like, some of the rockets were landing on our... Um, compounds and then um, the small arms fire started to get once it started to get closer um, we were finding you know bullet holes and rounds coming in so um even though that wasn't actually directed against the U.S. it was still very much a threat and then um as they got closer we were I I was really worried that um they were going to do another Benghazi type attack Right, and and that makes perfect sense to uh, you know to think that, um, and I'm sure they were thinking that. Uh, yeah, and um, there was a video that came out. I don't know how many people will remember, but um, so we left at the end of July, July 26. So the anniversary is coming up really soon, um, and then by August they came out with that video. It was like a pool party. And it was actually filmed on on our compound and um, showed them like the this other militia, um, Operation Dawn, which was very much affiliated with, like, the Islamic extremist side. They were there. They had video of them, like, jumping off the roof into the pool um, on our compound. So they they took it over. They said they were protecting it. Um, So, you know. Oh, I see. So this is after you evacuated. Yeah. Yeah. So they did end up pushing back the militia that we were, like, we were on their land and um, this other opposing militia took it over and um so it, did, it didn't take that much longer it was just a couple of weeks after we left so you know after you know obviously you left at, at that time um but things are still pretty bad in libya at the moment yeah they um yeah they're still fighting so that civil war is still going on and it's still a lot of the main people are still those same people that started while I was there. So Khalifa Haftar sort of on the one side and then the, the GNA on the other. So that's the UN recognized government. But right. there are a lot of, a lot of like, huge, like appalling things that have happened like in the intervening years. So there was, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of people um, going from like sub-Saharan Africa up through Libya to try to get to Europe. So like, the immigration um, problem, like 
thousands of people lost their lives trying to go across the Mediterranean on on those boats. And then um, there was a major problem with like human trafficking and sex trafficking. And, um, you know, people that couldn't get onto those boats or were getting stopped or couldn't afford to pay, you know, like the extra money that the smugglers wanted um, were then taken and and sold. And um, it was like just a couple years ago, they were talking about um, like CNN, I think, first reported on the open slave trade that was happening where um, people are actually getting sold in markets, which is just horrifying that yeah. something like that could be happening. And so it is, it is definitely not gotten better. Um, and then the, um, there was the attack as well. Um, it was Manchester against the, um, the concert, um, oh, was um, actually, are you talking about the, uh, Ariana Grande concert? Yeah. Yeah. That was actually conducted by Libyans as well. So, um, you know, it's, it became a safe haven for terrorism. Like ISIS very much became entrenched there for a bit. Um, they're still operating there. Um, and then and then on top of that, you have, you know, this, you know, human human rights disaster. And um, it's been quite difficult to sort of watch it and see what's happening and, and know that um, or hope that we could have made a difference or done something different, something better. But, um, yeah, I haven't been reading as much just because it just continues to devolve. And so at some point I just kind of had to take a step back from it. Right. Yeah. I remember seeing, um, seeing images on social media, uh, people were claiming was these, you know, these open markets for slave trading in, in somewhere in Libya. And, um, you know, I remember thinking, wow, this is pretty crazy, you know, to think that this is happening in, in uh, you know, the modern day. And, um, you know, this is just a, this sort of anarchy that can can happen uh, when there isn't a stable government. And, and these are the environments that these terrorist groups th- really thrive in. Um, yes, it, I mean, it's horrifying to, to see it and then know how quickly that that happened, right? Like, that yeah. was just like five years after the fall of the government and to know that like there's there's such evil and I think people don't want to believe it I've actually had you know like ongoing debates with friends or family right like human nature and you know how much do you trust people I'm like I don't trust people (laughs) um but you know it, it kind of it it's based on this kind of thing where I've seen firsthand like how quickly like such evil can take root and grow. Um, and it, it's really, it's hard to see for. Yeah. I mean, just recently, I think it was in the last 48 hours. Um, the, uh, so there's a, a Russian mercenary company called the Wagner group and, uh, yeah. the, the U S got into a, a, a battle with them in Syria and uh, they killed a bunch of them. And, um, uh, and, and I'm, I'm assuming they operate, you know, sort of all over the world. But the Wagner Group has been in Africa as of late, in uh, different parts of Africa. Um, and and there and- were some reports of, you know, a couple of guys from Wagner uh, getting kidnapped and you know getting their heads cut off and, and different areas in Africa. So, uh, you know, they're very active and they're active in Libya as well. And um, yeah, I just actually read that um, there was this. I just posted about it on social media, but um, 
they had placed like these members of the Wagner group had placed um, explosives yeah. around Tripoli. Mm-hmm. I just wonder, like, to what end? Like, are they doing that retaliation for something? Are they planning for something? Uh, yeah. And it wasn't clear. I think they're supporting the um, the faction that's going against the the UN backed faction. Yeah, they're um, Russia is on the side of Khalifa Haftar. Right. Um, yeah. So um, as Haftar has. Um, threatened and and I think is like periodically trying to do is to um, you know like attack Tripoli and go in and take it over. Yeah, it's, so I, I, it's interesting because um, when the Russians pulled out of Afghanistan, one of the things that they did was leave all of these landmines, like they buried them all over the country. And um, you know the combination of the Russians doing that and and the Taliban and some of the other groups. Uh, it made Afghanistan the most mined country in the world. And I actually interviewed a former um, a British paratrooper uh, who lost his leg in Afghanistan by, due to a Russian mine. And it's just interesting to see uh, there are reports coming out that the Wagner Group is pulling out of Libya. And it's just interesting to see that there, there's, it almost looks like the same kind of tactic where they're pulling out and they're just leaving all these landmines everywhere. And But, you know, what's also interesting is um, Putin and the Russian government, they deny having any really real connection to the Wagner group, um, at least publicly anyway. And, you know, I, for one, don't believe that for a second. Um, right. They just all happen to be Russian. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and, you know, they're using the same tactics and the... Uh, you know, a lot of the people who are there are, are ex-Russian military and that kind of thing. So, yeah, um, I, they have been pretty active there. And then I know that um, Russia very early on was supporting um, Haftar and providing like, weapons and whatnot. So I, do, I don't think they officially admit to much, but um, I think a lot, a lot has been written on it. Yeah, the U.S. just um, they just sanctioned the uh, or they add they added more sanctions to the uh, the guy who is the owner of the Wagner Group. Um, I'm I'm probably going to butcher his last name, but his first name is Yevgeny, and his last name is Prigovskin. Um, that's probably not the way to pronounce it. But the U.S. just announced sanctions on him uh, yesterday or today, and so. I'm not 100% sure, but I think that could be uh, a response to, you know, what they're doing in Libya. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if of the direct correlation, but I think, um, yeah, absolutely right. And, um, you know, one of the other things that I think people may not be as familiar with is um, Russia is not um, the only one doing it, right, in Libya. So there are quite a few other foreign countries that right. are involved in um, funding one side or the other and providing weapons. And so um, this is very much turned into a proxy war. And so, right. um, you know, it's really not, I don't see how it can end until that foreign interference intervention stops. Yeah. I think um, I was reading that uh, Turkey may have some hand in, in what's happening there as well as, as they're trying to, um, expand their influence in Africa. I know they've they've set up like, you know, bases and, and places to train and, you know, all over Africa. And if I remember correctly, I, I think I read something about them having some sort of hand in Libya as well. Yep. Turkey and UAE and Egypt and Qatar and 
Yeah, there, there's quite a few different countries that have been pretty heavily involved, even since I was there. And it was really just starting when I was there, but um, it's, it's definitely continued. So <clears throat> after, you know, you guys got out of there, um, was this sort of the, the end of your career uh, working at the agency? I stayed for another another year after that, and um, I'm really glad I did. Because I was able to learn about, so you mentioned like your friends who were in North Carolina, sort of um, back here, um, helping to support and look at what was going on um, during the Benghazi attacks. And and I'll say like, I felt very alone when I was in Libya. Like it felt like we were just totally out there on our own. And, um, you know, we didn't have a lot of support. We didn't have the military all around us. So it was very like isolating feeling. And then I you know, when I got back, I started to hear about all the things like that, like your friends that they were doing to um, try to help or try to support or try to think of things that they could do to help us. And that was really, I think, valuable um, for me to, to hear and to learn about and to know that um, people were really trying um, to get us out and to get us out safely. Um, but I stayed ultimately... Um, just for that year. And I, I needed to leave after that. It was just time for me to go. I didn't, you know, as an analyst, it's really important to be objective about like the groups and things you're analyzing. And I would, I did not feel objective any longer about, um, terrorism or Libya. And I just needed to move on from that. So after you got out of the agency, were you officially done with any government work? No, I, um, I work for a local government now, so I continued. Again, my service being very important. Um, I just work for local government. I'm doing emergency management again. Nice. So it's a lot of like disaster planning. So um, it's been nice that I could use a lot of these experiences to, to help now with like my local community. So a lot of what we do is plan for shelter in place and evacuation for natural disasters. And so it's a little bit different focus but same idea and so I've been really it's been gratifying to be able to do that and then of course right now it's all um coronavirus so um helping um the health department with that so it's it's different but there's enough there that I could sort of take and apply to what I'm doing and and I I think it's really interesting I love survival stories I always have so um it's it's a good fit (laughs) yeah yeah, like I've gone down like rabbit holes watching like those, some of those shows that's like, I'm forgetting the exact name, but it's like, you know, I survived some kind of crazy situation and they sort of detail their story. Um, and it's really remarkable to hear, to hear about the, those kind of things, you know. Yeah, I, I find them fascinating and um, I love reading books about, um, you know, like survivors and why certain people survive and others don't and, and that kind of thing. So. Um, it, it's a good fit for me, this new line of work. Uh, any of the audience uh, that may be interested in picking up your book, um, you know, where can they do that? Are, are you doing signed copies? You know, can you sort of give us a breakdown on, on all that? Yep. So the book is In the Dark of War, and it's available like on Amazon, Target, um, Barnes & Noble, anywhere books are sold, but unfortunately only online, again, because of the this time of coronavirus and the pandemic. So um, I don't have signed copies, but it is available online. 
Okay, right. That makes sense. Um, so did you know due to the coronavirus, did that affect your release date and things like that? Did you guys have to switch things around or? No, mine was already set for June, so it came out last month, and um, I've I've known other people that had to adjust their release dates, but um, we just kept mine the same, and um, it's definitely affected. Like we couldn't do a book tour or anything, so right. relying really heavily on um, social media and sort of this new way of doing things um, through, you know, Zoom and and whatnot. So. It's different than I think a normal book release would be, but um, you know, still very satisfying to get it out and and to have that done. Is there any way, if anyone listening sort of wants to keep up with you, is there anywhere on social media they can do that or a website? Yes, I'm most active on Twitter, and um, you can find me under Sarah M. Carlson. And my handle is S-M-C-A-R-L-S-1. So it's a little bit different. My name's very common, which comes in handy, like if I'm in a Sarah Connor Terminator situation. <laughs> but um, coming up with handles on social media is quite hard. Um, and then on Instagram and Facebook, I'm at She Spies Adventure. Awesome. So it was great to have you on here. Um, you know, I do. the audience is sort of a mixed bag, but... You know, everyone really sort of supports the military and government service. And there's a lot of younger Americans who sort of listen and look and, and get inspiration, uh, you know, f- for helping them decide what path they're going to take. When-